Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I'm speaking with the editors of an important new edited volume titled Organizing the 20th Century World, International Organizations and the Emergence of International Public Administration, 1920s to 1960s. The editors are Karen Graham Skoll Ayer, Hokan Ikonomo, and Torsten Callard. Um, the history of global governance has been an exciting area of research in recent years, with such landmark studies as Susan Peterson's Guardians and Adam Getachew's World Making After Empire. And we've learned lots about, say, the politics of creating new intergovernmental organizations. Yet the international bureaucracies themselves still remain mysterious, almost black-boxed. And this book, Organizing the 20th Century World, helps to correct this. Its contributions tell the history of international bureaucracies, as well as providing methodological tools for helping future research. And so Karen, Hokan, and Torsten, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I just want to begin with a discussion about um, the research team that you are all members of. And so it's called the Invention of International Bureaucracy um, Research Project. Um, And maybe, Karen, do you want to say a little bit about this? Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, So the project was running from 2015, and we wrapped it up last year. It's a project that was funded by the Danish National Research Council. And essentially, we got money to have four researchers working on the League of Nations and uh, international public administration in in that context. So that's what we've been been doing and and which is part of also what's in the book now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, coming from North America, um, these research projects involving multiple people at different stages of their career, um, uh, it, it, it just seems like a, a completely alternative way of doing scholarship. And I'm, um, I'm interested in it um, um, on those terms alone. Um, but, uh, uh, but maybe to jump into the uh, historiography would be a good place to um, direct our conversation. And so I'm, I'm just curious um, how the three of you see the history of international bureaucracies or the history of global governance? Um, you know, like, wh- wh- what have been some of the, um, the major um, themes or threads, um, maybe limits? Mm. Should I take this one? Sure. Well, <laughs> um, so um, I'm, I think we've uh, come to the conclusion that there are roughly four kind of waves of, of literature, particularly concerning uh, the League of Nations Secretariat, but also the United Nations. Um, and the first wave is uh, um, those that were part of the first experiment in international uh, public administration, the League of Nations Secretariat themselves, uh, and pub- uh, published kind of uh, work during the lifespan of their organization and also after, afterwards, summing up kind of the experience of it very much uh, on the premise of trying to, um, trying to tell future international organizations what their experiences were 
what kind of successes uh, the the league actually entailed, uh, and also some of the kind of the pitfalls, warnings, etc. Uh, but really trying to convey also that that uh, the setting up of an international public administration in the way that the league did it was uh, a revolution in itself. That it had a kind of an intrinsic value, uh, and and uh, as we've seen also all the way up to today, uh, quite a long legacy. Uh, and then there is a uh, perhaps a, a long uh, lull of interest in the secretariats of and public administrations of international organizations from the historical side, not necessarily from political scientists, but in the, in the post-war years and in the Cold War era, you have very... From, from from historians, a very traditional kind of perspective on on international uh, uh, public administrations, particularly taking an interest interest in the secretary generals uh, of of uh, the league and of the UN, uh, often comparing them, uh, but following them as kind of diplomatic actors, um, uh, and often diplomatic actors that are hugely constrained uh, in their ability to shape policy outcomes and multilateral negotiations. Uh, and so this becomes the, the main prism of a kind of a second wave of literature. And then the third wave is perhaps the transnational turn in international history, uh, where the bureaucracies come back in, in a sense, but not as institutions necessarily, but more as uh, networks of expertise, of, uh, of uh, epistemic communities, of uh, like-minded individuals that are working uh, um, on specific policy fields uh, um, in, in, in the language of global governance uh, somehow. And then the fourth wave is perhaps where we come in, um, where, where the, the point is to bring the institution back in, the role of the international civil servant back in, and, and see how that, that genealogy shapes uh, both the international organizations in question, but also uh, actual policy processes. So in a sense, taking bureaucracy seriously. Um, so I think that's kind of uh, some of the main traits. I don't know if anyone else wants to add anything. No, I think I think you are absolutely right in, in portraying the historiography like that, Håkon. I think maybe one thing that that you could add is that um, I guess one of our considerations at least have been that now is a very good time to take institutions seriously because the recent trends in international historiography uh, has given us a lot of new tools to work with institutions and that's also what we've tried to do in this volume and say so what happens if we look at an international public administration from a prosopographical point of view, from a biographical point of view, from a more traditional leadership point of view, sort of test out different ways of, of looking at, at this entity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really good way to set up our um, our conversation. Um, I, one, one thing that I was thinking about was, um, you know, before this um, third wave, to use your, your terms, um, you know, the, yeah, there was there wasn't um, uh, all 
that much interest in, uh, I mean, in, in the League of Nations, in the, but then also um, uh, more, more specifically in the, uh, international public administrations. And I'm just wondering what that sort of lack of research or interest um, uh, did to our more general understanding of international history. Um, like, w- what were some of the, um, like, consequences for our understanding of, like, 20th century international history um, when we weren't thinking about international public administration? Who wants to take this one? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. it is a big one. Um, well, I can give it a go, and then we can see where it, where it takes one. us. Um, but I think one one thing to consider when we when we look at the lack of interest in in international public administration um, for a very long time is that it's closely connected uh, with the overall approach uh, that dominated international history at the time. So there was a strong trend um, where international historians viewed international politics and international organizations from sort of a not very explicit and and developed, but still a fairly consistent sort of near-realist point of view, which meant that um, institutions in general were not um, given a lot of of interest, and and that goes for administration as well as as other institutional dimensions of of international politics. So I think um, we need to consider it in, in that context that to the extent that international organizations were being researched, it was the big decisions about how they were created and which state interests drove um, uh, those processes that, that led to the setup of, of new multilateral uh, bodies after the Second World War uh, and what states gained from participating in them. So it was a very particular perspective on international organizations and in general that was then challenged with with more recent transnational uh, ways of approaching international politics, I suppose. Yeah, I could perhaps add that uh, um, there is also the the uh, slow kind of broadening of uh, what international politics entails uh, that that uh, has come up uh, come into the field over the past uh, I don't know how many decades, but but. Uh, uh, for each kind of new new generation of historians, have been added perspectives to what international history is, from being diplomatic history, uh, in 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 essence, to being international history, which entails economic uh, uh, policies, uh, domestic politics, uh, um, intelligence, uh, and these kind of things. And then I think with the transnational turn, kind of expanding to to include uh, health governance, to include transport, transit governance, and these kind of uh, fields that that are attached to international organizations and developed through international organizations, which I think uh, um, has brought in a a completely new lenses, if you will, to to revisit uh, these organizations, not as merely multilateral diplomatic arenas, but as uh, entities that produce ways of of governing specific policy fields, and once you, as Patricia Clavin, I believe, called call it kind of inside uh, out perspective, so going inside the organization and 
and taking that as a vantage point to study economic governance or or health governance or what have you that kind of that that changes uh, the questions you ask uh, and also has quite clearly in the last 20 years opened up for some very interesting new ways of telling the history of the interwar period for example mm-hmm. so so one of the things that I really, really like about this volume is its attention to these methodological tools. Um, and so, you know, you, you have a chapter by Bob Rinalda um, on using the Biographical Dictionary of Secretaries General of International Organizations, um, Hokan's um, chapter on um, biography as this institutional can opener. Um, and then, um, Torsten, uh, you use the... Uh, the LONSE, the L-O-N-S-E-A database, and um, and you also use data visualization. And so, Torsten, I, I would love to um, start with your chapter. Um, so, uh, you know, you call your um, your method pros- prosopography, which is a word that I uh, did not know until I read your chapter. Um, and so, I would I'm, I'm just curious, like, what that is and um, how um, how you've used it um, to uh, understand the League of Nations. Yes, thanks for the question. So um, maybe I start with um, the basis of it, so the Lone Sea or Lone Sea database. Um, so when we started the project, um, we um, we didn't know of this database. It was very much in the beginning that we um, heard about it, and then we were. Um, in a way, lucky to um, quite quickly get um, the whole database from the people who produced them, which was um, a team around Madeleine Heron um, in Heidelberg. And they have spent a lot of um, work in um, producing a database which contains all international um, civil servants, uh, not only the one from the League of Nations, but also around them, um, based on um, a lot of material which was produced uh, during the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And we could make use of this database and we um, yeah, we introduced our own um, digital setup. Um, I wouldn't claim that we really did digital history, but at least we uh, produced some graphical representation um, by doing statistical uh, computation. And we were also getting help for that uh, from um, the department uh, at Aarhus University. So it is also kind of... um, yeah, a question: What, uh, wh- where you need maybe um, help from people who are really into um, computational technology? So that was basically the start of this um, prosophographical approach. Um, and usually, prosopho- um, a word which is really difficult to pronounce, prosopography. Um, it's more uh, used um, in, or I knew it more from fields like ancient history or medieval history. So um, they, for example, use it when you have groups of people where you have very little data, very little information. So you can um, use it to um, ask questions about the character of a group um, by um, putting together this little data you have. So you could find out something about um um, average age or um, gender distribution or um, networks of people. 
Um, so it is a, in a way, um, and uh, you say it, uh, it's quite new still in the field of international history, but I think it's uh, worth looking at it, especially um, as has been said that um, it's still kind of a black box um, that we're looking at when we look at international administrations. So we uh, still know little about the man and women behind the man in a way. Uh, so that was kind of the starting point. And um, so what what um, I tried to open there was a bit um, this uh, changing composition. So first the composition overall, and then also um, to try to get into this complex organization by looking at how it evolved over time and then slicing it into different um, uh, parts of it. So by looking at, for example, only the gender distribution over time, or um, which is also a big question, um, looking at the national distribution and how it uh, changed uh, over time. So that was um, that is a way like to to get an insight from a bird's eye view and um, uh, what is um, important maybe in this approach is that it it doesn't give you the whole picture so um, that was at least my experience that you need um, the other perspective to um, really uh, answer questions. So you need like context information, you need, the, you need the micro perspective and that it's also where it fits very well with, for, for example, Hawkins approach uh, to look like from the other side, from just one um, person and it's his, his biography. So I also try to add more information to the database and um, to um, the careers of the people. So where they end up uh, after having uh, been in the organization and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, so I actually didn't know that um, it was a method um, that was used more in ancient history. So that's kind of uh, a cool like appropriation of uh, um, another sort of um, subfields um, methodology. Um, but something that I found amazing about this is uh, the, the data visualization um, that you do. And so, I mean, you've done really cool statistical work to just... Uh, um, yeah, like as you put it, like slice up the um, uh, the league in different ways, you know, by gender, national um, um, origins, that sort of thing. Um, and um, the outcome is really, really interesting. I mean, uh, um, uh, one of your graphs shows how uh, 90% of all um, higher officials in the League of Nations were European, um, and almost all of them were um, British or French. Um, and, um, you know, by contrast, less than 2% were South American. Um, and so, I mean, you know, like we know that the league was uh, a, a very European entity, but to kind of have these numbers, I, I find extremely useful. Um, do you want to say something about about that? Maybe the, um, those particular numbers? Yes, um, for sure. Uh, so um, what I... The interesting point uh, for me was that you can that you can um, view these numbers in two different ways. So you can uh, say, which is maybe not the surprising result of it, that it was a um, mainly um, European and even uh, Western European, and also um, in its higher echelons, male-dominated organization. Um, uh, but you can also um, use this data to um, turn this a bit around. So um, this is what I meant. If you look at it uh, from a time perspective, if you look at how it evolves, you can see that it 
changes a bit towards um, a more multinational organization towards uh, the 1930s, even though it resists in general um, a very um, yeah, radical change. So once it was set up in the beginning, uh, it remained basically in the same um, uh, percentage of um, European and South American or um, other um, member states. But it's, you can see some trends, and this is um, doable with this kind of data that you can um, map out these trends. Uh, and if you take the South Americans, of course, they were um, not quite happy with uh, being um, uh, less represented than um, other nations. Uh, so it was, um, uh, it was a current uh, topic. Uh, and so there were also ways, and this is uh, where context and knowledge, of course, come in, comes into play. So there, was, there were ways to try to get around this. So, uh, for example, they set up a um, South American bureau uh, in, um, uh, I don't know where it was actually. Um, so uh, to, to get them more uh, involved into um, the secretariat and to please the interest of these member states. So it's kind of this balancing of interest of different member states, which is um, what one feature of, um, for example, the appointment policy um, through the whole time and nationality played an important role in that. Uh, so um, it was kind of a, uh, a changing currency in a way. So you um, would be very well off in the beginning if you were British uh, or French uh, to get in, uh, to land a position. But this was that would become more difficult uh, during the mid-1920s um, when complaints about the dominance of the British and the French uh, were coming uh, more recurrent, uh, especially from the assembly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think this is a really productive approach and I'm really excited to see um, what else um, you you do with it. Um, or what else other people do with it. Um, and, uh, and and you mentioned, and I also mentioned, um, Hokan's um, approach, which is sort of another way to get, you know, into this um, uh, sort of mysterious black box um, organization. Um, and so, Hokan, you, you have this really great metaphor. Um, uh, you, you're, you're, yeah, you're using... Um, biography as an institutional can opener. Um, and so I'm just curious, like, how can a biography, you know, open up the can of the institution? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I, first of all, I, I have to second what, what Torsten says, which is that uh, uh, the biographical approach, I think, also is uh, kind of uh, enhanced by having the bird's eye perspective. So I think the, biograph the biographical approach has really, for me, it's be it's been something that has matured. I would say by by be also being part of and and working with and looking at uh, uh, Torsten's work um, uh, and kind of uh, learning how the institution, what the institution looks like from a bird's eye perspective, and then perhaps also another uh, perspective, which is the kind of the formal rules and norms of the. Of the institution, which is something Khan uh, and I have worked uh, quite a lot with, and also Torsten and and Emil Seidenfaden, um, who was the PhD on the project. So, with those two things in mind, you have the formal rules and you have the bird's eye perspective of how the institution is composed in many ways. And that's where 
the biography then becomes a different way of getting into the organization, into the League of Nations Secretariat in this uh, in this uh, instance. Um, and uh, the biography, I think, has some advantages uh, because it comes from quite naturally from a very specific vantage point. So the biography is one person's way into and work within an institution. This is then you could say a, a forced decentering of of uh, some of the uh, uh, kind of uh, established truths about uh, how an institution works. So with that starting point, you come in with a person. I'm writing about a, a, a Greek or Ottoman Greek uh, uh, official called Thanasis Agnides. And his way in is very peculiar, and his trajectory is extraordinary in many ways. So this is, we need to keep in mind, obviously, it's not easy to generalize from, from such a biography. But on the other hand, it serves as a very distinct prism to question some, some established truths about how things work. So this is what I've tried to do with this chapter, and, and to use it as, a, as I call it, an institutional can opener. So I follow Thanasis Agnides' road into into the League of Nations Secretariat and his uh, work on a very specific case of the uh, population exchange between Greece and Turkey um, in, the, uh, in 1923. So uh, by doing that, uh, I can kind of uh, get at two very uh, basic things uh, that are happening inside a, a, a secretariat like, like the League of Nations Secretariat namely hiring of people, staffing, and being assigned a task. And so I can kind of use that prism to question uh, two uh, formal uh, rules, namely the, 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 the rule of kind of recruiting officials uh, by, their, uh, by, by formal procedures based on their skills, uh, Etc. Things that are established inside the League Secretariat later on, but in the early years of the Secretariat, it's really quite haphazard, uh, and it happens very quickly. And uh, Sir Eric Raman, the first Secretary General, really uses the the Paris Peace Conference as a kind of a uh, the best pool in the world to recruit uh, 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 his core staff uh, going to London and then later to Geneva. Um, and so how you end up in that kind of secretariat is quite interesting. It doesn't necessarily have to do with any formal uh, procedures. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to do with skill sets either, but, but it can. Um, but it has to do with networks, chance. Uh, and as I also found out, it has to do with being of the right persuasion. So quite a lot of this first generation of people are quite, in sync when it comes to their way of thinking about what the league is uh, and and what the kind of the the, the league spirit ought to be, uh, and and so it's a very peculiar first generation of of higher officials, but also a generation that stays on for a very long time, uh, as as Torsten has also shown. Um, so they have a lot of influence. So so the. These connections between this uh, skewed approach, which you get get from the biography, and then the more uh, aggregated uh, data that you get from, for example, prosopography and the formal rules, I think is quite interesting. 
that's the that's one one thing that the biography can do uh, and then obviously another thing that it can do is to link the personal and the professional uh, and uh, this I think has proven quite important uh, for my research at least uh, and I think it's quite healthy also to think about uh, when dealing with diplomacy and international bureaucracies that we're not kind of uh, tricked into believing uh, wholesale the formal rules that are presented to us, but rather inquire whether in practice this is actually how it works. And, and I can perhaps leave it at that and expand on it if, if necessary. But, but that's also what, uh, a thing that the biography is good at, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's really helpful. Uh, um, sort of a, that's a helpful layout of what this approach can do. Um, I think it would be useful to hear a little bit more about Agnetus himself. Um, in particular, I was thinking about um, like the story of how he even got hired by the League of Nations in the first place, or the um, you know the connection to Harold Nicholson and um, the recommendation letter, and um, and like in this, you can kind of see the importance of you know empire and diplomacy. So can you just um, share a little yeah, bit about yeah, this? Yeah, I can do the short, a short version of it. I mean, uh, it is a striking road in, but then if you investigate other people getting in, particularly in the early phase there, I think you will find that they all have quite uh, extraordinary trajectories. But but Thanasis Agnidis was born in, in the Ottoman Empire, in, in Nigde, uh, in, kind of in, in the Anatolian highlands, so really far from... Uh, high politics and really far from um, fr- from Geneva or, or, or any kind of uh, uh, diplomatic scene. So so he was there, but he was a really excellent student. He he was uh, um, educated at all these religious institutions that that were in the particularly in the late Ottoman era quite uh, prevalent. Uh, so he had like a Protestant and a Catholic and a Greek Orthodox uh, education, um, and particularly his time at the Anatolia College, which was American Protestant run, was quite uh, foundational for him in in getting a kind of a liberal, uh, liberal um, religious internationalist outlook, which shaped him quite a lot, uh, and then obviously with uh, things becoming quite difficult for the Greek uh, Orthodox minority in the Ottoman Empire in the at the turn of the century he leaves he uh, after um, after having moved to Constantinople for a while and take and educating himself uh, took a law degree um, but at the same time being involved in this uh, expat networks of French and British uh, and other diplomats there and the, this is where he encounters Harold Nicholson, the, the, the not at the time very famous, but soon to be very famous British diplomat. He was then a young, young secretary at the uh, embassy in, in Constantinople. Um, and he became his Turkish tutor. Um, and uh, they became friends and they have quite affectionate, uh, an affectionate friendship that lasts their entire life. Uh, but it starts there in 19. 19- 10 11 in constantinople but then he leaves for france uh, through in his family networks which are scattered all over europe so via belgium to france he takes his uh, retakes his degree in law um, in paris and is there kind of uh, 
enmeshed into the the politics and the the kind of uh, uh, informal diplomatic milieu and propaganda milieu of uh, of Venizelos, Eleftherios Venizelos, the Greek liberal statesman, who is at the time uh, first trying to bring Greece into the war on the side of of, of Britain and France, and and then it tries through that uh, to um, to uh, pursue the idea of a greater Greece, Imerali Idea, so uh, uh, to expand the territory of Greece, to reclaim, as they say, quote, uh, unquote, uh, areas uh, also in Asia Minor where there is a, a historical Orthodox Greek population. So Agnides becomes involved in this and is recruited through his passionate interest for, for Greek culture and music and, and obviously with his uh, legal degree in hand, uh, and becomes a very useful asset for for Venizelos. And then at the end of the First World War, he uh, has a uh, w- what I think is a kind of a personal dispute with with someone in the Greek Foreign Service, and ends up being kind of a, uh, out of a job and wandering the streets of Paris around uh, just around the time of the Paris Peace Conference. Um, and uh, so he bumps into Harold Nicholson, who is then part of the British. Uh, delegation uh, and basically tells him I'm, I'm out of a job <laughs> and I need a job uh, and Harold Nicholson tells him well uh, I've just been recruited by by Sir Eric Drummond to this uh, Secretariat of the League of Nations um, and uh, I think I will write him and recommend you and so he writes and recommends and tell, tells her, um, uh, Sir Eric Drummond uh, that uh, you know I have this Greek guy and I think he would be perfect um, so they, there he is. He has uh, his uh, British imperial connections from Constantinople and uh, uh, has also uh, recommendation letters from that. He has uh, recommendations from Venizelos uh, and Politis, these kind of b- big Greek liberal statesmen. Um, he has the connection with the personal connection with Harold Nicholson. And then there is the, the pull factor, which is Sir Eric Drummond is at the time uh, scouting for talent basically in Paris and trying to recruit uh, as many as possible uh, of a of a core staff uh, and quite clearly is also kind of lacking uh, knowledge expertise uh, on the area of the uh, former Ottoman Empire and Greece and and the and the Balkans so he kind of and he has by then you know legal training um, and uh, as well diplomatic uh, a little bit of a diplomatic experience, so he, he glides in there. But then the the kind of the thing that um, is the most uh, one of the most important assets is that he has also shown himself through his writings, through his connections, through through his practice, uh, particularly in the war years, that he is of the right mindset, that he is the, of the right kind of uh, ideological persuasion, if you will. And this is also hugely important to land him. The job, and this is why Harold mm-hmm. Nicholson recommends him. So this was not a very short version, but, but that's how he gets into the league, and it shows the very much the kind of a the unbureaucratic net uh, nature of early recruitments, and it also shows the yes. importance yeah. of beliefs and networks uh, like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that story is really useful. I mean, it's a, a really nice demonstration of um, your approach. But then it's also really useful to illustrate the um, 
well like in in a biography you can see all these like really big structures that are kind of channeling and incentivizing and um uh you know um constraining but then you also see this contingency uh you know um and so uh it's like in these two things that you have like a really interesting story about how recruitment happened um in the early days of the, the league of nations um and uh, i and, and yeah i, I want to jump ahead to your chapter um hokan and karen's chapter um, in which you focus on, you know, and this is me quoting you, because um, I think this is a, a really great phrase, um, an entirely new professional figure on the international stage, the international civil servant. Um, and so, Karen, uh, um, uh, can you say how the League of Nations helped establish this uh, new actor on the international stage? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, so to pick on, up on what uh, Håkon and Torsten have been saying, uh, this chapter sort of uh, represents a third perspective, adding to the prosopographical and the biographical approach. Uh, what we try to do in this chapter is to look at the formal construction of um, of the international civil servant, so the, the norms and the rules that produces this new international figure that is the international bureaucrat and and we claim in the chapter and I think we're right in doing that that um, that the League of Nations represents a major breakthrough for this international professional figure um, for a couple of reasons uh, one is uh, some very important early decisions that the first secretary general of the League of Nations Eric Drummond took when he was given the job of setting up the secretariat. Uh, so in the in the league covenant, there were very few rules and pointers as to what this new secretariat should look like. Uh, so he had a a lot of uh, room to to create the the bureaucratic entity the way he he wanted it. Um, and one of the decisions that he took very early on was that he wanted an international secretariat proper. Uh, understood in the way that he didn't want a secretariat that was made up of national delegations of experts and diplomats, each um, um, sort of producing their own uh, input for the secretariat. Instead, he designed the secretariat as um, a unitary entity which was divided along functional lines. So there are different policy areas in the secretariat, transport, health, finance, and so on. And in each of these sections, you would have a multinational staff that was employed by the secretariat and that was loyal only to the secretariat. And that was something completely new in the international stage and, and what lays the foundation of, of us talking about international civil servants in, in a meaningful full way. So, so that was an important decision that he took. And you can see that developing, and that's what we try to trace in our chapter how that uh, international loyalty um, and independence is then fleshed out by giving league civil servants diplomatic privileges and immunities um, by having them swear an oath of loyalty from the early 1930s of making sure that they don't work for other organizations while working for the league, making sure that there's a pension system so they can stay on long term and and make a living and a career out of it. So you create a new profession where you can actually live your whole professional life inside the organization. 
But what we also try to show in the chapter is that it is a very uh, important defining feature of the international civil servant that he or she also needs to be in close contact with his or her home government. So so what um, Drummond realizes very early on is that for the secretariat to have any kind of legitimacy, um, member states need to feel represented in the secretariat. And as Torsten talked about, that wasn't really the case from the start where it was heavily dominated by, by France and, and Germany. So you have ongoing negotiations through the interwar period about uh, taking on new staff, uh, where should they be coming from, which countries are particularly underrepresented, uh, at which um, point in the hierarchy of the organization does a particular nationality fit in, at what level should should um, a particular country be represented. And that is sort of an ongoing discussion in, in all staff appointments. Um, so, so what we try to to show is that that there is this um, uh, built-in dilemma between having an international civil service that is independent, that is neutral, um, that represents a general international interest, and at the same time, that has sufficiently close contacts with member state governments and and also symbolically representing um, a broad range of member states for it to, to have legitimacy and, and be able to operate um, efficiently politically. And, and that's what we try to, to develop in, in the chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I, what I like about this, and then, I mean, so I think this is um, something that this chapter does really well, but then also I think the book itself is um, uh, doing this a little bit more generally. Um, you know, there's this older popular thesis uh, that you still hear that the League of Nations was a failure. Um, but um, what you are arguing is that um, the, the League of Nations um, very successfully, you know, um, introduced a new form of, um, you know, like international behavior or a new, a new um, uh, international identity in the um, international civil servant. Um, and I, I think that's uh, um, a really uh, useful um, argument to have. Yeah, I think you're right. That's that's uh, sort of the the key point we want to make. But I think what we what we also try to show is that it's it's not only making an impact through sort of its its positive example. It's also being critically evaluated. Uh, by some of the international organization representatives after the Second World War. So Dark Hammarskjöld, for instance, or Jean Monnet, who are working in the UN and, and in early European integration, respectively, also see the shortcomings of the Secretariat and, and how relatively impotent it was. Um, what were the limits of, of, of a very sort of neutral, hesitant, uh, discreet international civil servants service and, and having for instance Chamonix arguing for a much more activist supranational and and uh, technocratic kind of of international bureaucrat to drive international cooperation so so there is also there's both a positive and, and a negative example story built in I think in 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 the chapters more broadly mm-hmm. um, and um uh, Hukan, maybe I can um, rope you in here. Um, 
you know, these, like this identity persists into the post-war era um, and you have this, you know, critical evaluation as um, Karen is um, uh, suggesting. Um, what are some of the, like, um, like things that um, continue um, or change or, um, or stop uh, um, in between the interwar era and the post-World War II era? Like, um, like what, like how, how does the international civil servant um, evolve? Yeah, that's a big uh, question, but it's uh, it's. I, I think it's very good to start with the baseline uh, that that Karn mentioned that that the League Secretariat, whether they liked it or not, or whether they uh, uh, would want to build on it or do it differently, it was the baseline experience, and that's kind of that's that was unavoidable uh, in the uh, in the post-war years when they started to build. Uh, the UN and other international organizations, what we call second generation international organizations. Um, and so uh, just from that, I think there is a, an enormous amount of work being done, particularly during the Second World War. You have the uh, war, you have the Carnegie Endowment, you have, uh, so the Carnegie Endowment has really tries to gather as many league officials as possible uh, and have uh, big conferences with them to try to to interview them on different topics of international organization and particularly uh, international public administration and what to do and what to not do. So they're trying to build up a knowledge bank uh, based on the experience of these league officials. At the same time in London during the Second World War, Sir Eric Drummond uh, uh, is trying to gather and successfully gathers a small te- team of, of formal league officials uh, in London during the Second World War. And they write the so-called London Report, which is also a kind of a summary of experiences and um, uh, a passing on of knowledge uh, to uh, the next generation of international organizations uh, that are to take shape. So that's one thing uh, where there is a very strong connection and where there is a lot of, you could say, um, active work on the part of the former league officials in trying to pass on the baton. Uh, and this is also where the first generation of literature on the on the league public administration comes from. That's these these uh, kind of uh, uh, these efforts. So so no wonder they are a little bit, let's say, uh, trying to show the good side and also. Um, uh, passing on knowledge so that's one thing and then uh, in terms of changes and differences quite clearly there is an experience of the, the secret secretary general and Karn knows uh, much more on this than I do but uh, that the secretaries general were too weak in the league um, that they were administrators and not uh, uh, kind of leaders of an international organization uh, so uh, one of the big changes is, of course, that the Secretary General of the UN can uh, uh, bring things forth to to the Security Council, uh, which gives them a political role, uh, which the the League Secretary General Secretary General never had. Um, but there are, there are also other differences. Uh, I think the the emphasis on geographical representation inside the Secretariat is much more emphasized from the get-go in the UN, quite clearly out of a concern of uh, legitimacy, but also 
uh, I think, uh, because it's uh, it's more global from from the beginning. So it's a different organization in that sense. And then there is the portioning out of uh, special agencies, uh, uh, which have their own peculiar rules, which s- differ more or less from the core UN staff. Um, and I think that's also an important, uh, let's say, evolution of of uh, uh, international public administrations that they become more and more specialized, even within the UN system, uh, so to speak. And then, you, of course, you get all the other additional international organizations like the OEC, which becomes the OECD, uh, the European Coal and Steel Community, uh, etc. And they they use, of course, the league as a baseline, and sometimes they even copy paste uh, staff regulations more or less into their own uh, organizational DNA. But uh, they also, both because they have different jobs to do, uh, but also because they've learned, uh, choose different paths. So you get a much wider range of different kinds of public administrations that can be compared and contrasted. And and I would say this is what we try to do in this book, book as well, to kind of put them side by side and also connect them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Another question that I had, and um, I mean, this is just, this could be directed at um, all three of you, is the periodization. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's really interesting that um, uh, international public administration doesn't really emerge until the 1920s. Um, and I'm just curious why, um, why it happened then, like why it didn't happen earlier, um, like why the, um, you know, you have uh, several um, antecedent, um, uh, you know, inter- intergovernmental organizations like the ITU, um, the uh, International Telegraph Union, the Universal Postal Union, things like that. Um, but it does like the international civil servant doesn't really emerge, um, uh, at least in your telling, until later. Um, can does someone want to um, maybe explain why it happens in the twenties? Well, I, I I could have a go at that. Uh, so I think it has to do with at least two things. One is is scale. Um, like even if there were previous uh, international organizations, mainly in the form of of technical unions and and sort of specialized uh, agencies, um, their number of staff was very limited. It might be ten or twenty people. Whereas at at the height uh, uh, of of the league secretariat's existence, it had around a staff of around seven hundred. So so there was a, a a completely different scale, which I suppose invited the 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 earlier international organizations uh, to think in local staff and secondments of of a few international staff. Uh, and also what they were dealing with were mainly technical issues um, that wasn't politicized to the extent that the that the league's work was. So the need for broad national representation in terms of legitimizing the league's work was was perhaps um, somewhat stronger than, than was the case with these uh, smaller and earlier technical unions and, and agencies. Wonderful. Um, and we're... Coming to the end of our conversation uh, right now, um, and 
I'm I'm curious. Uh, I mean, maybe firstly, what is on the horizon for the invention of international bureaucracy research project? Like, can we be expecting um, other volumes like this or conferences? Well, the the project itself is is over. So what is happening? Oh, okay. <laughs> what, <laughs> what is happening now is is that that obviously uh, each member of the project is working on new projects that are all I think in different ways related to to what we've been been doing. So I am working on a monography on the international civil servant, trying to sort of do a, a professional biography of of that international. Uh, figure. I don't know if you want to say a little bit about what you're doing, Håkon. Yeah, I, I'm doing, I guess, two things. Well, rather, three things. I'm writing a biography on Thanasis Agnidis. The, the story is too, too good to let go. <laughs> so so uh, I'm carrying on with that. And there's a, a very nice personal archive uh, of him as well. Uh, and then another thing I'm doing is trying to build kind of carry on building on the prosopography, this, the work that Toshn has done and the Lonsea database and try to develop a kind of a research tool uh, where, where, where people, where students, researchers can engage with a portal which, which somehow uh, captures and allows them to, uh, uh, in various ways, get different statistics about the League Secretariat depending on what they're interesting in, interested in. So kind of an interactive a research tool, uh, and then the last thing is that I will we I will be working on disarmament uh, and the League of uh, Nations in particular uh, for the next couple of years. So so that's my my carrying on of this. <clears throat> yeah, just adding a few words uh, on uh, what I do. I mean, uh, the one thing is that I try to assist Hawken uh, with his uh, approach and. Um, I'm very curious about um, maybe a connection to the Lontat project, which um, is also maybe worth mentioning. So the digitization project of the League of Nations archive in Geneva, um, which is still ongoing, but they have already, um, I think, 80% of their material digitized. Um, uh, so... Um, that is an interesting project, um, but I also um, changed a bit sides. So I'm currently um, in a library in Lower Saxony uh, working on open access publication infrastructure. So I'm a bit more on the publication side now, um, but still with all my heart connected to the idealists and uh, the League of Nations team. So I'm happy to um, do more research on prosopography. Um, and I have still so much um, material. So there's um, hopefully coming something mm -hmm. soon. Yeah, well, I mean, all of this sounds super exciting. Uh, and I, yeah, I look forward to seeing what um, all three of you do in the future. Um, and I really want to thank you for speaking with me today. I learned so much just uh, speaking with you. Um, I really enjoyed your book. Uh, I think it's a, an important volume um, uh, for all the reasons that I stated at the beginning of the conversation. You know, like these organizations, these bureaucracies um, really are black box in the historiography and you've found ways to open them up. Thank you so much for having us, Dexter. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, you've been listening to a conversation about organizing the 20th century world 
international organizations and the emergence of international public administration, 1920s to 1960s. Um, and this has been a conversation on the New Books Network um, on the New Books in History channel.